I'd like to continue where we left off, continue from where we left off a couple of evenings ago. <clears throat> Brief review. John Master Sheng Yen's quote, I think this is still a good place to refresh everyone's memory. What he says is, according to Chinese Chan, or what we call Zen sometimes, practice should not be separated from living, and living at all times should be one's practice. Um, and we are beginning to explore the some of the implications of that for us being here. If this is true, uh, and for me it's self-evident, it's so obvious that it's a kind of emperor's clothes kind of obvious, um, that we spend most of our time living, not sitting, and that sitting is just a, a manifestation, an expression of living. Before there was Vipassana, there was living. There was life, <laughs> then came Vipassana. Maybe, I don't know. Okay. Um, if you recall, the emphasis was on uh, taking a fresh look at our life here to see that there is a full life on an intensive practice retreat uh, that is not limited by the formal practice of sitting and walking. That there's really quite a daily life here one that's going on and that's thriving. It includes waking up, washing, eating, and so forth, our yogi job. Um, and what I was trying to help us, encourage us all to do, is to view it as one piece, that is, uh, as life here, not to diminish the importance of sitting, because clearly this is what's featured here, and it's wonderful that it is. It's an opportunity for us to get a unique kind of work done in this silence and with a protected, simplified form of living, which we call sitting, where we temporarily suspend all our obligations, requirements, and we're just with ourselves. It's interesting. Look what we have to go through to get us to be with ourselves. Well, how much arranging and, you know, this whole structure. And My goodness. So apparently there's strong resistance to being with ourselves. And we're all doing it together. So a, a sangha that's, that comes together for a retreat like this and other retreats, we're together helping each other, but we're also alone at the same time. Because uh, you're here to get to know yourself. No one can do that for you. Same for me. Uh, so is it possible for us to begin to change this attitude? Because the whole point of even needing to give a talk of this sort is that uh, the more you practice, very often what happens is the more you joy, the more joy you get out of the sitting and walking, and the bigger the gap between daily life and here, between daily life and formal practice. And everyone says, "Bring the practice into everything we do," and uh, I don't see a huge amount of that. I mean, it's a nice saying. But for us to, um, south to to kind of give it artificial respiration so it is rescued from being a cliché, I think we have to understand just what is it that we're getting at. And I believe I mentioned this, but, it, but it's worth mentioning it again because I think the stakes are quite high, uh, particularly if you care about this practice. What I'd like to suggest for you to... Uh, to consider is that uh, at this point in time uh, there's tremendous energy to practice Dharma and it's among lay people in this country, in places in Europe, elsewhere as well, but I mainly know about this country. Uh, tremendous commitment, energy, resources, time, everything going into it. Um, that's unusual. There are not a huge number of people who want to be monks or nuns or who remain monks or nuns after they've, they've done it. 
most of us resume family life or relationship life or work life or university life or whatever, whatever kind of life. And uh, it's not that this has never happened before. Uh, Certainly there have been many lay people who have broken through at deep levels. When I was in Korea, uh, I was very, very impressed by two Zen masters uh, that I work with. One was a lay person. He was a famous uh, attorney in Seoul, uh, immaculately dressed, a three-piece suit, uh, very well groomed from head to toe. And when he would come to the monastery, he would bow to the monks, and they would bow to him, full prostration. Usually, it only goes one way. Uh, and if you, all you had to do was spend some time with him, you'd see why. I mean, he was radiant. He had incredible energy. He had a family, was an attorney, and also had put in uh, years of uh, obvious intensive practice, which had borne fruit for him. And the history of Buddhism has lay people like this. And there have also been communities that have sprung up. But by and large, uh, the, the tradition has been kept alive, sometimes destroyed, almost, but mainly kept alive by monks. And now uh, and uh, some nuns are starting to be, the, the order of nuns is being revived, mainly in the West, or by Westerners, pressuring people in the East. Uh, so if this is so, and I don't know, maybe it's temporary. Maybe it's on the way to people here, uh, many people deciding to become monks and nuns. I really, ha- I, it's not, and I'm not saying this is superior. I'm also not saying it's inferior. All I'm saying is it's a fact. Here we are. Look, you could be uh, having a summer vacation somewhere, picnicking, swimming, frolicking at some, you know, all kinds of things. But you're here. That says something. And you're not alone. Retreat after retreat is pretty much always filled up here and at other retreat centers as well. So there's energy here. If you go to Asia, Primarily, it's the monks doing the real serious practice, even receiving the serious teaching. Uh, And lay people serve the community, sometimes with tremendous love and devotion. It's very wonderful to be around. But they're not, they don't view themselves as it being in a position where they can go very, very deeply. Uh, When I was in Thailand with Ajahn Mahabua, a number of us were, Karada was there too. There was one time where uh, his Thai followers became very annoyed with him. Uh, They said, you give the high teachings to the Westerners, but you don't give it to us. Uh, I didn't want to say anything, but there was a reason for that. You know, we'd come practically around the, more than halfway around the world to get the teaching. Most of us had been practicing for many years and were willing to practice on the same terms as, as monks and nuns. And the lay people, at least up to that point, were not. And so he gave them a different kind of teaching altogether. Basically, you know, be a good boy, be a good girl, be generous. Stay out of trouble. Uh, And the Westerners, uh, but he was uh, astute enough to recognize something. Okay, so it seems to me that unless, since so much of our time is spent in relationship, whether it's family or other kinds of relationship, work, school, what our life is. You all know what your life is. If we don't uh, bring that into the practice in a genuine, authentic way, um, I think this will turn out to be a kind of fad. There won't be a a momentum, a dynamic energy uh, that can sustain itself. Uh, There won't be enough people going deeply. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'd, or we'd wind up churning out some hothouse plants where people can only be happy when they're in special settings and th- throws them, throw them back onto Wall Street, you know, or Newbury Street or whatever street, and I've got to get out of here. I, I've got to get to my little cushion where I can feel happy. In, breathe in, out, in, out, in, out. Ah. Uh, the way it looks, the world is going to remain overwhelmingly filled up with non-meditators who do believe in greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> they're, they're voting with their bodies. 
They're, they're voting with how they live. Uh, and so we have to learn how to live in that world. Uh, and if we don't, I think it's a very, very limited journey. The monastic trip is tailored to really help maximize the potential for liberation among people who do that kind of practice in that kind of setting with that kind of commitment. And it's been tested over centuries. If we just take some of that watered-down monastic approach, it can in very subtle ways undermine us, where we become not quite lay people, not quite monks, uh, afraid of this, afraid of that. so we need to learn how to jump in, how to live. We have to learn how to live. And one of the things that I feel is important about a retreat like this is that in a small way, I don't feel totally deluded. I don't expect that because we attend to our yogi job and how we tie our shoelaces here, that when you get home, uh, you're going to you know, just glow and, and, and be able to just take care of everything. But it's the beginnings of changing an attitude. Uh, so that it isn't some kind of grim, dutiful thing, uh, because we heard it's good for us, and then basically we just want to sit. But we actually realize what we're talking about is the quality of our life. And most of it's lived off the cushion. And so if practice does not enhance the quality of our life, or it's not the fault of practice, practice is there, the tools are available, the teachings are available. There's nothing, I don't see anything faulty there. What's needed is people to sign up for the course. It's, it's waiting to be used, used uh, with sincerity and with depth. And so that's what's in back of urging us to, uh, it's sort of like uh, a dress rehearsal, because daily life here is a lot easier than when we get home. And if we can even begin to turn that attitude into one where we see life as a whole, that we are whole people, and we can't expect a fragmentary cure to take care of us. An analogy that I'd like to use, uh, I have a, one hobby I have is I enjoy herbal medicine very much. I read up on it and experiment with different herbs, and all it's fun for me. Uh, and within the, the field of herbal medicine, there's now a split. Uh, people who are, who are doing whole plant biology and those who are more imitating the pharmaceutical industry whole plant uh, herbalism, uh, the view is that you take the whole plant, uh, even though we don't understand all of the different elements that compose a plant chemically, uh, we, in a sense, we defer to God or nature, whatever you like. We realize that these, these plants have worked for thousands of years, and do we uh, have to isolate what we find out to be effective through some tests and then throw the rest out. And then the, the other, which I would call a fragmented approach, tries to figure out this is the, the chief active ingredient in the plant. And it's mimicking pharmaceuticals in a way. Let's throw the rest out. We don't know what they do anyway. And now more and more research, rather interestingly, is starting to show that even though we don't know what all the uh, elements in a plant are, if you take the whole plant, it's more effective. Uh, somehow nature is a little wiser than we are. We haven't totally outsmarted it. And so the analogy being uh, whole people, uh, the practice has to be for us as whole people living a whole life. Um, And I hope that our stay here in some small degree uh, begins to move us in that direction when when you go home and take the practice with you. Um, In Cambridge, we're attempting to do that. We have a center that emphasizes, uh, we have retreats all the time, we talk about sitting, we, we're fortunate that we can all come up here often, so there's quite a bit of traffic between uh, the Cambridge Center and here, and uh, it's no accident that the two centers are close, that's why Cambridge was started. But even there, I've run into people who've come from California, one uh, person starting a center in, in um, doesn't matter, somewhere in California and wanted to know what our secret was at CIMC, which is it's, it's doing okay. Uh, and one of the things we do is we have general interviews available to people that are not on retreat, that are about a half hour. Uh, and we're, we'll talk about sitting and walking if that's what's on a person's mind, but we'll also talk about problems in family life or work, 
uh, whatever was our life in the world. And when this person heard that, he said, oh, oh, so you're doing a kind of counseling, psychotherapy. I said, no, no, I, I'm not a couples counselor or a family therapist. I have no training there. I have no delusion that I can do that. We're applying Dharma principles to daily life situations. Nothing new. It's just that we're doing our best to encourage people to live the Dharma in their ordinary lives and then to come and talk about it. And we're learning how to do that as we go. It's not easy. But I don't think I got through. He said, well, you don't need a half an hour for that. Why don't you cut it down to just 15 minutes? You can see more people. Uh, and they can see family therapists. I said, okay, let's move on to another subject. Um, a few odds and ends, very small things that uh, we di I didn't get to the other evening in our round of life here. Um, what does it mean uh, to start practicing, let's say, the moment you wake up? And what I'm suggesting is not the way, it's just one way. It's a way that I've been using for myself. And uh, if people are interested, I've encouraged them to do it. Uh, I've been doing this for quite a while. A teacher I had encouraged me to do it. I found it helpful, so I do it. When I wake up, the first thing I do, even if I don't have a lot of time, which I don't here, of course, at home I have more often, uh, I'll lie in bed for a few seconds, uh, be with the breathing, but more importantly, invite the body to tell me how it's doing, uh, look into the mind. In other words, I start the day uh, with just getting a sense of what I'm starting the day with. And, for example, at home, sometimes I generally will do yoga and then sit, every, most days, unless something is unusual and I can't. But if I wake up in the morning and I invite the body to, to help me understand how it is, it might say, no yoga today, I'm really tired. All those interviews and all that blah, blah, blah you did yesterday. Uh, just take a shower and sit a bit, but no yoga, please. Okay. Uh, so a day might begin that way. And then uh, just doing the same things, we wash up, etc. we eat. And, you know, we've gone through some of that. Uh, at the conclusion of the day, going to sleep the same way, perhaps going to sleep with the breath. Just, uh, just in a very naive, simple, ordinary way, not trying to figure anything out or uh, make great insights into what the day was like, but just how is it? as you lie there in bed just a few moments before, uh, if you're fortunate, you drop off to sleep. Uh, you take a walk around the loop. Uh, learning can go on anywhere and everywhere if you are committed to it, if you're interested. Everything I'm talking about is really about interest. How to uh, stimulate some interest in our daily life. We're interested in our daily life insofar as getting things done, accomplishing certain things. We work very, very hard. But this is a little different. We may have to keep working hard, probably, but it's asking to bring something else into it, this quality of looking and listening and being willing to learn from what we see and hear. So in this sense, uh, we're learning how to live. I think one way to, I hope I'm not doing the Buddha an injustice, but what I heard him saying to me a few years ago was, you humans, you don't know how to live. Let me tell you how to do it. And he gave us some hints. First of all, if you keep getting attached to everything and think that life is permanent, how do you expect to be happy? Because it isn't. And you can't, not that way. And so there's some general profound guidelines from the Buddha's teaching, I think in all the spiritual traditions, some wisdom that has been around for centuries. And it's, it's just dying to be used. You know, wisdom is supposed to be lived, not just uh, quoted, uh, Lao Tzu said this and Plato said that. That might have helped them, but what about us? Okay, so take a simple thing I've discovered in myself. I walk around the loop. I love to do that, especially when we lead retreats here. We sit a lot, not just in the hall, but uh, yeah, we do a lot of sitting, just believe me, upstairs and here. Um, when I do the loop, and a couple of times, I come here a number of times a year, three or four or so, uh, a few of the times the weather is extreme. and I've, So when I do the loop, I usually don't let the weather stop me, but if it's very cold or if it's very hot, we haven't had either on this retreat. It's been a delight to do the walking. 
But if it's very cold, I've noticed that it, I find it hard to follow the instructions I've given in the hall, which is to do nice, especially if people are getting drowsy, to do rapid walking around the loop. You know, it, it, most of you know where it is. Um, and inhabit the whole body with awareness. Uh, be in touch with the breathing uh, and the entire body in movement. And when the mind wanders from the sense of the body in movement, just come back as if you were in the hall. It's the same principle. But I found when it's very, very cold, my mind doesn't want to notice what it has to notice, which is the cold is burning my face, or it's very uncomfortable, at least for the, maybe the first 20 minutes. And when it's very hot, and there are, uh, you know, I'm sweating a lot, or there are bugs uh, taking a bite out of me, what it, both, in both those occasions, what it will do is just goes off on a trip. It just wants to be somewhere else. You've, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, because I don't care what Corrado said and what Larry said, be with what, what is. You know, uh, the mind has a mind of its own, and it's shameless, and it doesn't want to be with what is. Because it doesn't like feeling cold, and it doesn't like feeling hot. But once I got on to myself, I'm much more sensitive to knowing that, oh, uh, sweating already. Uh, the mind is going to be off and running. I mean, I don't predict it, but it's, it's, I've seen it enough times. And so I'm more in a state of readiness, and I can uh, recognize that my mind is not with the walking at all. Uh, it goes off again and again. And so that's helped me to, to carry out the practice uh, while just doing natural walking. You might say, that isn't such a big deal, and it isn't. You know, it's just one small thing. But I, I'm using it as an example of if you pay attention, you can learn how to live. And you learn it from life itself. Life is the great teacher. It's constantly teaching us, 24 hours a day. The lawfulness is there. The teaching is exquisite. It's teaching us impermanence. There's no place to look and to not see it, etc. So the only thing that's la lacking, the curriculum is all set, is no students signing up. So I would encourage you all to sign up. Uh, depending on how you look at it, it's either free or it costs your whole life. <laughs> um, take, uh, let's say you're a, 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 a work retreatant. The different categories of people here. What I was trying to suggest and I, the other evening, and I think I said it very quickly, is there are many different uh, uh, categories of, of yogis here, people who have uh, full-time jobs but get to sit sometimes, work retreatants, long-term yogis, uh, people doing a retreat, uh, practicing guests, and so forth. Uh, and I have, over the years, I've gotten the sense that work retreatants uh, often will say, or between the lines, what they're saying is, well, I, I don't have, a, I'm not able to do a full retreat, you know. I mean, I, I have to work four hours a day, whatever it is, a kind of feeling like they can't really do the retreat right because they can't come in here and just sit. And with this way of looking at things, that is, wherever you, whatever you're, whatever it is that you're doing, can you do it wholeheartedly? Because if it's life that comes prior to any of these forms, then wherever you are you can practice and it needn't be seen as inferior in any way. So if the person could understand, yes it's true, I can't sit as much if I'm a work retreatant, but I can learn something else, going in and out, in and out, work and sitting, work and sitting, sitting and work. Well, that's excellent training for when we go back home. Um, once a year I teach at Omega. I, uh, the reason I went a number of years ago is Joseph and Sharon strongly suggested. They, I, I somehow had resistance to going there. And they said, no, no, you'll see that a lot of people who go there, they don't feel ready for an IMS retreat yet, but they're almost, and they do a ret five-day retreat at Omega, and then many of them come here. And it's true. I've seen this happen. So I, I said, okay. And I agreed to go the first time. And then when it came time to go up there, I called up and to phone in the schedule, this and that. And they said, oh, no, 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 you, no sitting and walking at night. You know, I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, most of our people come here from New York City and other places. We have a great cafe and we have all kinds of other things. And, you know, uh, this is part of why they come up here. Uh, you would be really bucking the culture. You know, and first I was a little, you know, saying like, it was too late to say no. I said I would come and, and I 
struggled with it. I resisted it. I said, uh, can we make an exception? He said, you're gonna, uh, it will really damage a lot in your retreat because people assume when they come up here, it's part of Omega life that they can do their program and then at night meet each other and talk. And we went around and around. Finally, I got it. I said, okay. <laughs> you know? Okay, so this time it was me who had to adjust and I realized that's not a problem. So when the classes started, the retreat started, we did it like a regular retreat during those hours. And I would say, look, those of you who want to get a full sense of what Vipassana can be like, uh, when you go to the cafe, when you go to shows, when you socialize with each other, fine, do it. See if you can maintain some wakefulness. Try to do it mindfully as best you can. And so there's some continuity f between what we do here and then what you do in the evenings. And in the morning, tell me about it. So you have to have an accountability, otherwise people won't do it. <laughs> and so I, often I just say, well, how was it? We were able to be, and a little bit, and it became um, just a nice way for people to practice, and I saved it for me. It became a little bit more interesting rather than feeling, what am I doing here? Okay. So uh, once you understand this, uh, wherever you are, you can land on your feet and understand that if you can see and, and hear and you're willing to learn, from what you see and hear, uh, then practice can flourish. Okay. Uh, let's move on to uh, this choiceless awareness stuff, because if the groups are any indicator, uh, it's driving some of you crazy. <laughs> And I was trying to think of a way, a, a lot of what I have to say is based on both written and questions that came up in the group. Very, very uh, good questions. Uh, I uh, uh, enjoyed very much, uh, even though I was being challenged a lot, um, trying to help us all understand, well, what is this? What is it we're talking about? Uh, when we say choiceless awareness, uh, and it could be free attention, open attention, open awareness, or one person discovered they were doing it and was just trying to find out what I was talking about. They've been doing it all along. You know, uh, you mean, what do you do? Well, I sit there and I just watch everything arise and pass away. I said, That's it. Oh, that then I'm doing choiceless awareness. Right. So, uh, somehow what happens, the, everything gets reified. It gets turned into like a giant machine. You know, I'm doing choiceless awareness. Or am I doing it right? Well, there are refinements in how to do it. So that part is correct. It's, it's actually quite an exquisite art to do nothing, to really do choiceless awareness. We're approximating it. Some of you are able to do it. It's something that grows out of your practice. It can't be rushed. It can't be forced. Um, it... Um, Simply put, what we're asking is that, uh, let's say you calm and concentrate the mind on the breathing. And that part uh, may not always be easy, but it's not, it's, it's not complicated. The instructions, everyone knows what that means. Uh, then when, when it's opened up, whether you use the breath as a kind of anchor to help you, or some people prefer to let go of the breath and experience the breath as just one happening among everything else that's happening, uh, that's fine. Whatever one is, is best for you. Uh, what is being asked is that you just be yourself. It's odd. We need to practice being ourselves. Just sit as you are. Uh, and it's the questions, so many of the questions have to do with um, getting somewhere. Uh, using it so I get benefits from it. Now, uh, it's an odd practice to the normal mind. The, what I'm talking real choiceless awareness or free attention. Um, if you drive a car and you're going somewhere, 
I would not use choiceless awareness in the sense of you have a destination, you can look at the mileage ticking off, you're getting closer, you arrive, you have a goal, you know what the goal is, you've done it perhaps before, you, you come from wherever you're coming from, here's ba town of Barry, IMS, you pull up, you've accomplished your goal. We want to aim at benefits to come out of the, our practice. And the aim has a tendency to make the practice uh, not, not the practice. And yet benefits come out of doing it. They are provided to us. Uh, they, it's not that it's uh, a waste of time. Although some of the uh, Asian teachers who teach this have had uh, hilarious ways of talking about it. They'll say, I who do this particular practice, this is one on his epitaph said something like, uh, he wasted his entire life sitting on the cushion. Okay. He was bragging because he was a, a highly awakened master. Or saying things like, just sitting, uh, this just sitting, uh, it's, it's completely useless. But if you don't do this useless thing wholeheartedly, your life will be useless. Figure that one out. So there's immense power in the non-doing. Now, there, you want to drive a car, there are goals and so forth. Here, the means and the goal are the same thing. There's only this moment. There's taking care of this moment, right here, right now, whatever that moment is. Uh, a great Chinese master named Lin Chi said, um, take it easy and do nothing. That's how he summed up his whole teaching. Take it easy, that is, receive it, and do nothing. Okay? That means we're not trying to fix anything, we're not trying to improve upon anything, we're not trying to do this in order to get that. Uh, in other words, we, we're, we're giving the calculating mind the rest, and you know that's difficult because we all have very powerful calculating minds. And so we're learning our way out of that. And how do you do that? By seeing how you can't... Uh, many of us have the hardest time not trying to fix something or how not to get in there and do something about what's happening and make it be what you think it should be. Perhaps you're a restless person, irritable and restless, and you've fashioned that into, I'm an irritable, restless person, and I'm going to use this practice and uh, I'm going to become nice and calm and peaceful, like I hear all these meditators talk, the way I want to be like them. And so you sit and you practice and you have a fantasy or a projection as to what you think peace is and what you think calm is. In the meantime, it's the same irritated, lose my temper easily, impatient mind that has invented what it thinks peace is. How can that work? In fact, the fact that the mind can't just let the restlessness be is another sign of its restlessness. Okay. So uh, what the practice is saying is, um, can you see that? Can you see that? And just leave it alone. It just, uh, can you just receive the restlessness? And if you can, out of that grows genuine peace. Now, how can you trust that and have faith in that if you haven't seen it enough times? So, of course, some of you, you're starting with uh, faith, particularly since you haven't lived your life learning this art of non-doing, of just being, and, but with alertness. It's not, uh, it's not siesta time. You know, it's, it's both passive and active at the same time. It's passive in that you're learning how to be, how to receive. Let life come to you. Uh, as you become more calm, let's say the whole body meditation we did this morning, Corrado guided us in, uh, even on a physical level, the body can learn how to really be planted like a tree, very stable. And from that place, of course, that means the mind too, stable, receiving whatever turns up. And then <coughs> see what that does. Um, <coughs> During Corrado's talk, and I think I hinted at it, we were talking about the avoidance of this or how overwhelmed our ability to be in the moment, to direct mindfulness or attention to what is, uh, how uh, overwhelmed it can be because of the power of the conditioned mind. Okay. So 
step number one is uh, is coming to no escape. If it's true that we have a strong tendency to, to escape from what is, I'm going to try to formulate, I would say, a large, a very important aspect of our practice has to do with being with what is. Just this, whatever language you like, but I hope you get what I mean. And the tendency of the mind uh, is, is to not be with just this. It's always into what was and what should be, not what is. So often, not always. And our practice is an attempt to help us see that that isn't really working out so well. That life is lived out in the present moment, which is all we have. And that if you can learn to do that, something quite dramatic unfolds from that. Okay. Escapes uh, can be more and more subtle. The obvious ones, denial. We think denial is a river in Egypt, you know. Uh, Oh no! I'm f- oh no! Terrific! I'm I'm at, oh, I'm having a great retreat. Well, why are tears streaming down your? Oh, just the joy, joy! I just love it here. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Or we get lost in it. Those those take up a lot of our time and energy. Escapes can be uh, suddenly space out. Suddenly get sleepy. Suddenly it's time for tea. Suddenly it's time. And at home we have many more. Um, vehicles to transport us out of the moment. Okay. It gets more subtle. Uh, one of the ones for people who are highly educated and have very intellectually fine-tuned and honed minds is the power of explanation. In, Cam- in Cambridge, it's reached its epidemic proportions <laughs> because we've read so much and we know so much psychologically sophisticated, spiritually defi- Buddha Dharma, what Buddha Dharma? T- Tibetan? Zen? Theravadan? Which, which one? Soto Zen or, or Rinzai Zen? Okay, so we merely know everything. Not everyone, but a lot of us, those who do. Okay. Or we've had lots of training in psychology and we understand how the mind does this, that, and the other thing. Um, if we can explain it, Let's say we see we're afraid or we hear a good explanation from a teacher or from a tape or read it in a book. It's so satisfying. It's so fulfilling that our job is done. It hasn't even begun. Because the quality of awareness that uh, we're talking about uh, is fresh. It has nothing to do with the past. I'm now granted to take some refinement to come to that. And that's that's what our practice is about. That is, very often, we're looking at the present through yesterday's eyes. We form images and notions about one another uh, which uh, get between us and a person. Whether you live together for years or you've just gotten to meet each other, we size each other up and, yeah, wrong, yeah, wrong. Or we have loads of knowledge about what's happening. And it's a very secure feeling that you can, that you can figure everything out. And it's asking a lot. It's kind of poignant. Can you just leave that alone? Just set it aside. And images that have been used since ancient times is the highest meditation is baby mind. What do you mean baby mind? No presuppositions. Or the mind that in this, in this approach, innocence is a good word. Naive is a good word. What it means is fresh, open. Uh, you're not seeing through a filter of all kinds of assumptions, conclusions. And so that's one escape. And for some, that's quite an escape. They're, they can be even more subtle if there's a strong sense of the observer. That separateness, that self-consciousness, is you're not intimate. You're not intimate with what it is that you're observing. So the practice more and more is moving towards seeing without a seer, observation without anyone who's doing the observing. You've all heard this way of talking. Let me give you a a framework that I have found helpful. Uh, It comes from Korean Zen, which I have practiced intensively for five years, a year of it in Korea. And you hear it, I heard it, every day, many times a day. Three essentials. One is great doubt. Another is great faith. And a third is great courage. Okay, let's apply that 
to just the nitty-gritty of observing our own mind-body uh, at work. Great faith, great doubt rather, it's not the doubt of skepticism. It's the don't, famous don't know mind, it, which is a very high form of intelligence. It's not, it's not what time is it, I don't know. It's not a lack of information. It's that you've suspended all of what you know and there's a, what is this? It's a kind of openness. What is this? If I have to put it into words. Here's a, uh, an exchange. between a Chinese master and, a, uh, and his student that comes from, uh, uh, from the koans at, in, in Zen. Ti Tsang asked Fa Yan, what is your journey? Fa Yan said, going around on pilgrimage, visiting holy places, often where the Buddha was or where great masters meditated and perhaps died. Tisong said, what do you expect from pilgrimage? Fa Yan said, I don't know. Tisong said, not knowing is most intimate. It's a compliment. He's saying, uh, well, shouldn't you go on pilgrimage? Uh, this will, uh, you know, I'll feel very inspired. I'm visiting where the Buddha went and all this. I related to this because I did a visited the eight, eight holy places of the Buddha, which are in India, and um, some of you have done this and know it. And what I found as I went to the first two is that I'm on pilgrimage visiting the holy places where the Buddha died, was born, attained this, that, and the other. And I saw that I was projecting an enormous amount into it. Isn't this far out? Isn't this amazing, the Buddha? And I, when I looked closely, it wasn't real. I really was not. It was just all I saw was, you know, some trees and land and, you know. And then a few times, a few places, I really felt something that was authentic. And I was very, very moved. What it got me to see, of course, is that the real pilgrimage is always inner. The outer pilgrimage is helpful insofar as it inspires you to do the inner pilgrimage. Now, there are many, many people who don't who don't really feel up to doing the inner pilgrimage or have not been empowered. Uh, the, when you, if you go to these eight places, there are loads of Japanese tourists, which in many ways is a good thing because beautiful hotels are built wherever they go, <laughs> w which we stayed at, you know, <laughs> gratefully. <laughs> um, and they have a teaching that before you die, you should uh, visit these holy places and then, you know, all kinds of good things that are going to happen to you if you do that. I don't know, maybe, but I think I have more faith in practice, just what we're doing here. Uh, so this don't know is, is that kind of openness, a willingness to, it's not doubt in terms of skepticism, it's suspending what you know. You'll have a good rebirth, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> They'll make you be a Dharma teacher. Thanks. So that attitude, if you can bring it, let's say, to irritability or some of you have reported very difficult mind states, physical pain, emotional pain, despair, the pain of aging, you, you know what, what's very fear. It's difficult to look at. Uh, can we come to it with a fresh mind? That's part of that. That's what this is pointing to in terms of of choiceless awareness, or whatever language you like for it. Uh, the second has to do with great faith. Uh, as applied to this particular, uh, what we're talking about now, great faith would mean that you really have faith that if you allow the mind-body process to reveal itself, instead of telling it what it is, if you uh, uh, allow it to unravel itself, flower, if you will, even if it's what you don't approve of. Let it uh, happen uh, and tell its story, not necessarily in words, that something really valuable will come out of that. And we've already begun to do that the first evening or the f w when we looked at the breath. The simple instruction that says, allow the breathing to just unfold naturally rather than directing it or controlling it. 
you're beginning to learn how to surrender to what is. You're learning how to allow just a simple breath to be what it, what it wants to be, to not direct it, control it, according to yoga therapy or breath therapy. or You know, it's shallow, let it be shallow. It's deep, let it be deep. And perhaps some of that uh, faith that that's really uh, fine rather than the conditioning that we have is we've got to do something to make it better, ideal. We've got to become something better than where we are. That's one of the forms of craving, a major one that produces suffering. We crave becoming. Somehow, whoever I am, wherever I am, there's some place better and there's someone better I can be. Got to be, because this is, this is it. Uh, okay, I think you see that. So that trans- translated into this practice, it's a growing faith that in sitting and just the, it's, it's uh, passive in that you're allowing whatever is there to surface and express itself uh, according to its own lawfulness, but it's active in that it requires a high degree of alertness to meet what turns up. So it's not just uh, sitting there as a blob. And it's not free association. Some of you have felt that that might be it. Uh, the third one, great courage. I think you probably know this one. In the context of this, it's uh, however we come to get that is uh, some, they're all interrelated. Uh, the sense that we have what it takes to be able to face what our life is. That we're not made out of eggshells. That if fear is there, we can begin to, uh, maybe slowly, just a little bit at a time, uh, move in closely to fear and get to know it. It's energy that we need to get to know because we'll never be free if we don't get to know it. It doesn't go away. You know, I visited my father in his late 80s in a nursing home and there's, there's fear all over the place. It doesn't go away because you age. It can get worse. And so the great courage in terms of this practice is the courage to let what's there be there and sometimes what comes up is unknown. Maybe we should uh, leave on this note. Uh, there may be more to, to say, uh, I don't know, in a few evenings. Uh, one of the great values of this kind of training, of choiceless awareness, obviously I love it, it's my practice, and I've been doing it for a while, is that I have found it and find it to be great training for life. If you sit on a cushion and just allow the mind to reveal itself, it does, but you never know what's coming. Uh, sometimes it's kind of uninteresting. It can be sitting after sitting, and then suddenly something quite dramatic, maybe wonderful, some piti, some rapture, and then some peace, and other times terrifying. Now, is life any different? This gets at a central teaching which uh, Ajahn Chah, who has been so helpful for many of us, he would talk about impermanence just the way all Theravadan teachers do a lot, but he always added something else. He said, Life is impermanent and uncertain, isn't it? It's really uncertain. Like if you reported something that you felt like this shouldn't be happening, and say, I guess life is uncertain, isn't it? Uh, it is. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's going to change. Recently I saw the most dramatic example, or one of them that I've ever seen, of the impermanent, uncertain nature. I was uh, watching the news at home, eating a sprout avocado sandwich, feeling quite relaxed, and suddenly there was footage on a a, a wedding in Israel where somebody had taken a videotape, and you see the bride and groom, uh, they're happy, they're drinking, everyone is happy, they're in ecstasy, it's a wedding, you know, and they're uh, full of joy, and some amateur is, is shooting all this, and suddenly the floor caves in. And you see everyone fall to, not everyone, but lots of people just fall to their death. And it's right there in your living room. Uh, Well, that's a dramatic case, of course, but are we, is our life uh, any different? In small ways and perhaps in big ways, things happen. What was the saying? Shit happens. Good things, too, come unexpectedly. But things are uncertain. 
So the practice you get by just sitting and learning how to be with what turns up gives the mind a, a really flexible, pliable uh, quality that it's necessary for living harmoniously in a world that is like that, that is constantly changing, and, in, uh, and along lines that don't necessarily go along with our plans. Uh, it's said beautifully in the Tao Te Ching. People are born, are born soft and supple. Dead, they are stiff and hard. Plants are born tender and pliant. Dead, they are brittle and dry. Thus, whoever is stiff and inflexible is a disciple of death. Whoever is soft and yielding is a disciple of life. The hard and stiff will be broken. The soft and and supple will prevail. Um, it's training in that. So relax, open up, let it all happen. Don't worry if you get identified and get lost in it for 10 minutes or you feel, I can't do this. You can go back to the breath. You can use the breath at any time. It's not kindergarten. It's a, a very profound method. Uh, but if you don't try it, how are you going to learn that you can be with your own experience and that uh, you're able to be with whatever turns up? It's a skill like any other that can be learned, but you have to do it for the skill to develop. We have a few moments of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.